0: If you have your Bible today, if you would, take it and turn to the book of Matthew. Matthew, if you're not familiar, is the first book in the New Testament, and you can find it about three-quarters of the way through the Bible. And we're going to look at the end of Matthew, at the end of of chapter 27 into chapter 28. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, then please take one of the black Bibles on the end of each pew. If you're not looking in the Bible as we go along, you may feel a little bit lost, because what else do we have to say? If God's already given us His Word. And so that's where we're going to direct our attention today is to the words of Scripture. We're going to read together about the resurrection of Jesus. What I'll do today, I typically will read through the whole passage and then preach through the whole passage. But I'm just going to read it a little bit at a time and preach it a little bit at a time. So we'll do that today. But I just want to say what we're we're doing today is we're celebrating that Jesus was raised from the dead. And if you're not familiar, that's actually what we do every Sunday. Uh, the reason that we do that is because that's what Jesus taught us to do when he was raised from the dead. He, he was raised from the dead on the first day of the week, and he met first the women at the tomb uh, on that day when he was raised from the dead, but then he gathered together with his disciples on that evening. And then the next time that he gathered together with his disciples was, as is put, put at the end of the book of John, eight days later, which in, in the counting of time of those days would have been the next Sunday. And so he taught them, I rose from the dead on the first day of the week, and the first day of the week is when you can gather together and expect to meet with me. And the church has been doing that ever since. Gathering on the first day of the week uh, to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, and so obviously this time of year we we remember that it was this time of year. It was at the the time of the Passover that Jesus was crucified and that He rose from the dead, and so it's kind of normal and natural to especially remember that this Sunday. But I would just really like to invite you to come next Sunday as well because we're going to do it again. We're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus again next Lord's Day and every Lord's Day, but praise God for uh, for today. Uh, the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead, by the way, is not just a historical footnote, and it's not just a theological footnote. It's not just kind of like, well, Jesus died for our sins, and, and then, boy, the cross is great, but then there's a footnote by the cross, oh, and he rose from the dead three days later. No, if Christ weren't raised from the dead, here, here's what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. That means I might as well sit down if Jesus hasn't actually been raised. And your faith is in vain. You might as well go home if Christ hasn't been raised from the dead. Might as well give up on this whole Christianity thing if Christ hasn't been raised. He explains that later in that chapter. He says if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, pointless. And you are still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep, which means... Christians who had died in Christ have perished if Christ isn't raised from the dead. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, it doesn't say, well, we've lived a pretty good life. It's okay. Here's what it says. If in this life only we've hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Jesus isn't raised from the dead, then exactly what the unbelieving world thinks about us is true, that we're pitiful and dumb. But here's the good news. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Guys, if Jesus weren't raised from the dead, all of this would be pointless. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And that makes all the difference in the world, not just for our religious actions of worship not just for the parts of life that you have somehow managed to block off as spiritual as opposed to the rest, something like this. It is because he lives that we can face tomorrow, right? It's it's because he lives that all of this uh, has any point. Well, today we're going to look at that story and see as as Jesus had been crucified, as he had died, as he had been confirmed dead, by the way, there are, there are some out there. This came up, I think, in the 19th century at some point. It's called the swoon theory. There were some people who thought maybe the reason that Jesus seemed to be alive after he died is because he never actually died. Well, i got to tell you, the Roman soldiers were very, very good at killing people. That was kind of their specialty. And they made sure he was dead, and he was buried, and he was buried in someone else's tomb. It was a borrowed tomb because he didn't need it very long. And so on that third day of the week, he rose from the dead. But let's look and see, starting in Matthew chapter 27, these things after Jesus had died, the events after his death and into his resurrection. We're going to to see today, if you're looking at the back of your bulletin, that's going to be a helpful way to follow along. We're going to see in these verses prophecies of the resurrection, the attempt to prevent the resurrection, the terrifying power of the resurrection, evidence of the resurrection, the joy of the resurrection, and most importantly, the Christ of the resurrection. First, look in verses 62 and 63 of Matthew chapter 27. It says, the next day, that is, after the day of preparation, so this is the day after Jesus was crucified and then taken down dead from the cross, and then carried by Joseph of Arimathea into this tomb that he had recently purchased, it seems, and Jesus is dead, Jesus is buried. It says, here's what happens, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days, I will rise. We don't have very much recorded in Scripture about the conversations that would have been going on among Jesus' disciples in these days. But it kind of seems like that the chief priests and the Pharisees who hated Jesus, who recommended Jesus be crucified, that they had on their minds the resurrection of Jesus more than his own disciples did. They remembered that Jesus had predicted that he would be crucified and that he would rise on the third day. And they wanted to make sure that it didn't happen and that nobody could possibly pretend that it happened. But the reason for that is because it had been prophesied that it would happen. Jesus himself had prophesied this. In John 2, verse 19, Jesus said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And it says that the Jews who were around said to him, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But then it says in John 2.21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. He was making a prophecy right there that he would die and on the third day be raised from the dead. He said it a lot more explicitly than that also. In Matthew 12.38, some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And then in Matthew sixteen twenty-one, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. And then in Matthew 17:22 he said the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. How can you be clearer than that? And it says they were greatly distressed. But it's not just that Jesus himself prophesied about his death and resurrection. He he said it very clearly, but he's not the first one who had said it. He he had also, by his Spirit, breathed this out through the Old Testament prophets. Dave read for us at the beginning of the service Psalm 16, which is a psalm of David. Within that psalm, he says, You will not let your Holy One see corruption, Psalm 1610. And the apostles pointed out multiple times in their preaching after Jesus had risen from the dead, look at this. David's tomb is still there. This can't possibly be about David. This is a prophecy of the resurrection of Jesus. He will not see corruption. It's even clearer in Isaiah chapter 53, a a chapter of Scripture that was written 700 years before Jesus came. And if you read it to just about anybody, and you don't tell them where it's from in the Bible, you don't tell them when it was written, and you say, who is this about? They'll tell you Jesus, because it's just so obviously about Jesus. But it says in Isaiah 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for sin. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Do you see? It just said it's the will of the Lord to crush him. But then he will see his offspring, and it's the will of the Lord to prosper him. He goes on, and he says, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. Do you hear that? There's just really no way to put those words together except the idea that the Messiah was going to come and die and in his death bear the iniquities of sinners like me, sinners like you, but then not just die, but after that divide the spoil with the strong. He's alive after he's dead. Do you see this? This is prophesied in the Old Testament. "'Because he poured out his soul to death "'and was numbered with the transgressors, "'yet he bore the sin of many "'and makes intercession for the transgressors.'" It was prophesied all along. Jesus prophesied it clearly. His disciples may not have understood what was going on. You remember that they disbelieved, even Thomas, even after he had heard that Jesus did exactly what he said that he would do, he still said, "'I don't believe it until I get to put my finger "'in the holes in his hand.'" and put my hand in the hole in his side, then I'll believe it. But you see, Jesus' enemies, they were looking for the resurrection because they knew this is what was prophesied. So what do they do? Will they attempt to prevent it. In verse 64, it says this, Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers, go and make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So they say, well, he's been a fraud all along. We proved he was a fraud because we crucified him. That shouldn't have been possible if he was the Messiah of the Old Testament. He shouldn't have died. That's why when, when Jesus was dying on the cross, that's why they stood around and they mocked him. And they screamed these things at him, like, If you are the Christ, the Son of God, come down. That's why they thought putting the sign, Here is Jesus King of the Jews over his head, they thought that's that's why they thought it was so funny. They thought it was impossible that the one who would fulfill these prophecies would die. But now, now that they think that they've proved that fraud, they're worried about the next fraud, right? They're worried, what if they make it look like he rose from the dead? But you know what I think's really going on? They know he's going to rise from the dead. They're trying to stop it. They they understood so much about what was going on with Jesus, but they just hated it. They hated him. And they wanted to put a stop to this. So what did they do? It says they got permission from Pilate, which means that this would have been not just under the authority of the temple and the scribes and the Pharisees who were running the temple operations, but also under the authority of the Roman government, that they went to Pontius Pilate, and under Pilate's authority, they set a seal on the stone. Now, what exactly does that mean? I'll just say I don't know exactly what that means, but here's something that I read on the internet. So it has to be true, right? But it seems plausible. It says, this seal was most likely several ropes that were drawn across the stone and then affixed to the tomb walls with a soft clay imprinted with some symbol of authority. It was also likely that the ropes were also sealed at their juncture in front of the stone And in this way, no one could move the stone or the ropes without breaking the dried clay and destroying the seal affixed upon the clay. The seal was there to put on notice that no one was to mess with the tomb, and Rome could deal quite nastily with those who did so. Now, boy, humans have very clever plans for opposing God's will, don't they? Jonah had some very clever plans for opposing God's command to go and preach to Nineveh. He decided to get on a boat that was headed in the other direction. Didn't work out for him. The priests of Baal, when they came up against Elijah on Mount Carmel, they had a very clever plan for opposing God's will and trying to prove that their God was greater by having all of these great numbers of them and trying to trick their God into setting the fire, and to winning this battle against the Lord, didn't work out for them. Pharaoh had a great plan to try to oppose the will of God, that he was going to not let the people go. That didn't work out for him. And then when he did let the people go and he changed his mind and went and chased after them with his great army, the greatest army in the whole world, and had them cornered up against the Red Sea thought that he could by his own force and wisdom take down the plans of God, it didn't work for him. God led his people through the Red Sea and crashed it back down on his army. And here you have just one more example of sinful man looking at the will of God, the revealed will of God that the Christ would suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and saying, we're going to stop it. It's not going to work out. I do wonder, even as we look at this and, and we see those words, go and make it as secure as you can, and we kind of snicker, right? But I wonder if there's in our own hearts, in your own heart, a tendency to say, yes, I know that this is what God has said. And if God had said it to that guy over there, I might even think, yes, He's the one who should turn from his sin and trust in Christ and walk in holiness, but not me, because my situation is different. And I can come up with a clever way that my life needs to not go in the way that God has said. And this is all going to work out for me because I have a better plan. No, you don't. Don't do that. Don't resist the will of God. And when I say the will of God, I mean the things that are clearly written in the Scriptures. Just like it was clearly written in the scriptures that Christ was going to rise from the dead. But what did they do? Well, they made it as secure as they could, as secure as they knew how, but you can't do that. Trying, trying to keep Jesus buried was kind of like trying, like a, it was like a grasshopper trying to stop a tank, where it was like looking at the, out on the beach in the morning and saying, tide, you will not come in or going out there and saying, Son, don't come up today. It just couldn't possibly be done to try and go and keep this tomb secure. And what's the reason? was well, because John 5.26, Jesus said, As the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. It's just a characteristic of who Jesus is as the giver of life, and the author of life, that he has life in himself and to try to keep him dead was just never going to work. It's not possible. How is it possible that he could be killed at all if he has life in himself, if he's the author of life? Well, it's because, as he said himself, I lay down my life for my sheep. He laid down his life voluntarily for sinners. Sinner, do you hear this? voluntarily, but he has the authority to take it up again. He, to, he was raised by the Father. Even though he laid down his life, as everyone thought that they were taking his life from him, death was not going to possibly keep him. He would rise from the dead because he has life in himself. Well, they made that effort. They sealed the tomb. They put the ropes. They put the the clay with the, the seal of the Roman government on top of it. If anyone possibly messed with this, that they were going to get the full punishment of the government. But what happens? What happens next is the resurrection. The next verse is chapter 28, verse 1. Let's see that power, that terrifying power of the resurrection. It says, now after the Sabbath... Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, who was Mary the mother of James, went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Mm those guards who were going to make it as secure as they could, remember? How about that? Just, just think of what this would have been like. Think of that incredible power. Now, anybody who really was paying attention shouldn't have been too surprised by this, because just think of the incredible power of God that was already displayed when Jesus was crucified on the Friday before this. That there was the ground was shaken then that darkness came over the whole world, for, or over the whole land for three hours, that there were some among the Old Testament saints who got up out of their graves and were walking around the city, that uh, the, the curtain in the temple, the temple that these, these very chief priests and Pharisees were were protecting and working in, the temple was torn in two. All of these things would happen. It's not surprising that more would happen, but just think of the terror of it. You have the terror of the earthquake. You have the terror of the angel descending. The terror of the stone that was taken away and rolled off. You have the terror of that angel then sitting down on top of that stone. Maybe making eye contact with the people around terrifying. He looked like lightning, it says. So terrifying that these guards, remember who these guards are, these Roman soldiers given over by the Roman government to guard this tomb. These soldiers, as I told you just a minute ago, who specialized in killing people and were very good at it, these fearless soldiers are cowering in fear, Falling down like dead men, it says. Now you just think about this. What Was that angel that they saw, was that was that kind of like a typical cuddly baby with wings like you might see at your grandmother's house in a little figurine? Uh, this, it doesn't seem to be what the angels in the Scripture look like. This is pretty, pretty typical in the Scriptures. When somebody meets an angel and they realize that it's an angel, sometimes the angels come and... and, and mask who they are in in certain ways but when they come and show and demonstrate who they are you get people falling down like they're dead people who don't know what to do except fall on their knees and start worshiping the angel typically the angel will then say do not worship me i'm a creature like you but still they're terrifying just because of the power and glory of this creature But this angel is not even the Lord himself. Keep that in mind. This one that they saw who had an appearance like lightning, who terrified the soldiers, who rolled the stone away, did not care whatsoever about the seal that had been put on that stone. He is not God. He is nowhere near as glorious and terrifying as the Lord himself. Do you you know what the Bible says? It says this multiple times. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you've never come to fear the Lord, the Bible says you have never come to the beginning of wisdom. Another way to put that is that you are a fool. fool. You, You may not think of yourself as a fool. You may think that you're pretty smart and pretty good at your job, and you really may be in many, many ways, but... In terms of the greatest reality of all realities, you do not have wisdom if you haven't come to realize that this terrifying angel is just a tiny servant of the greater creator of all heaven and earth and everything, the Lord himself who is holy, holy, holy. What Isaiah did when he first saw the glory of the Lord in the temple with the angels around him calling out, holy, holy, what did he do? He, he fell down and he said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. What did Peter do when he came to understand that Jesus was Lord? He was in a fishing boat with Jesus when Jesus did a miracle, and Peter came to understand this. What did he do? It says he fell down and said, Depart from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. He says, I cannot be in your presence. I will be destroyed. That's the beginning of wisdom, and there's just a tiny hint of that in the power and the terror of the resurrection event and even the little angel messenger, little compared to God, (laughs) that God had sent in that event. You need to come to know the fear of the Lord, and you need to come to know Him, and you need to come to know that perfect love drives out fear not because God stops being scary, but because God starts being for you and not against you. You need to come to Christ who is over all, and you need to trust in him and submit to him as the one who is to be feared and to be loved and to be embraced as Savior and King. Come to Jesus. And as you come to Jesus and as you trust in Jesus, believer, we, we have this truth that we prayed from out of Ephesians 1 just a little while ago, that there is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. You see this, this power and this earthquake and this brightness and the thing that made the, 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 the soldiers fall down in fear That is hinting at the power that Christ worked, the power that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead toward us. That power is toward us who believe, toward us who believe, and we need to embrace it, to trust in this Christ. The next thing that we have in these verses is some evidence of the resurrection. In verse 5, it says, but the angel said to the women, do not be afraid. Uh, that, what, what, a, what a thing to say. <laughs> do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen. As he said. Hmm. And here's the, the evidence that the angel gives. He says, come, see the place where he lay. The angel says, come, look at a little bit of the the physical evidence. <laughs> come, come and see the crime scene, almost, if you will. <laughs> come and see that he's not here. He's risen from the dead. Now, one of the things that this tells us is that it's okay to present some evidence for these historical events. The angel himself said, Come look at a piece of evidence that Jesus is risen from the dead. Come look at the empty tomb. And so because of that, I want to give you guys a little bit of evidence. Those of you who've been around here for a few years, you've heard me list some of these before, and I think it's a helpful thing to have and to know, is that there is actual historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And it's not just that there is some actual historical evidence for it. There is more historical evidence for the event of the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead than there is for any other event in all of antiquity. There is nothing else in all of ancient history that we have more evidence of, no other historical event, than the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. So let me give you 11, just really quickly, 11, Proofs for the resurrection, historical evidences. One is the empty tomb. This is the piece of evidence that the angel took the women to. The tomb was empty, and we have historical evidence to back that up in the fact that they lost the tomb. Do you know if you if you go to Jerusalem today? I haven't been. I'm not telling you this by experience, but I know that there are multiple sites that claim to be the real tomb of Jesus. And you go there, and and people will say pay money here so you can come see the real tomb of Jesus. And then somebody else will say, no, no, come pay money over here so you can see the real tomb of Jesus. And then somebody else will say, no, over here is the real tomb of Jesus. Come pay us money. Well, you know why we don't know? It's because they didn't care. It's because his believers did not care where the tomb was because he wasn't there. He was raised from the dead, the tomb was empty, and everybody knew it. Nobody was coming up with a body because it was gone. Jesus was risen from the dead. second piece of evidence is that the accounts in the Bible, including this one that we just read, tell us that women were the first to find the tomb empty and to see Jesus after he was raised. Now why is that a piece of historical evidence? It's because the way that women were viewed in this time and in this place among this people, was not very good. There, there was one of the rabbis around this time who was quoted as having said that it's better to burn the Torah than to teach it to a woman. That, that was how much stock they put in the way that they viewed women and their ability to learn and to receive and, and pass along teachings. So what that would mean, if you were making up the story... In this time, in this place, trying to convince people that Jesus had raised from the dead, you would not have made up that women were the first to go to the tomb and to see it empty and to meet the risen Christ. So it's just one more piece of evidence. The third, a third thing, that there were no charges ever brought against the disciples for stealing Jesus' body. Remember, they went and they set the tomb, they set the seal on the tomb so that if the seal was broken, they could prosecute and, and probably execute whoever had broken that seal. They never even tried. You know why? Because they knew that it wasn't a body theft. They knew it was Jesus risen from the dead. Another n- Number four, there were never any charges brought against the guards who had been posted at the tomb. That's another thing that somebody could have been executed over if this were a body theft, is that the guards dropped their guard and fell down like dead men and were sleeping or whatever it was and didn't guard the tomb properly. But there were never any charges. Another thing, number five if you're counting, is that the, certain, the certainty that the witnesses of the risen Jesus would be discredited if they weren't telling the truth. You get two people trying to keep a lie straight. Doesn't work out very well. What about three? What about a dozen? What about five hundred? That's, that, that's what the Scriptures tell us in 1 Corinthians 15, that there were over 500 eyewitnesses to the risen Christ. How are they all going to keep their story straight if it's not true? They, they wouldn't, but they did because it's true. Another piece of evidence is the transformed disciples. For example, you've got Peter who goes from the day that Jesus is being Hauled off to be crucified that he's, Peter is denying that he even knows Jesus. He's cowering in fear when a little girl asks him, Don't you know Jesus? He's saying, No, 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 no. But what happens after Jesus is risen from the dead? He is emboldened. He is transformed. He's willing to go to the, the literal very people who crucified Jesus and to say, This Jesus whom you crucified, God raised from the dead. Another piece of evidence is the willingness of the disciples to die for the truth of the resurrection. They spent the entire rest of their lives under the threat of death, and most of them did die because they weren't going to back down from what they had seen and heard, which is Christ raised from the dead. Another piece of evidence is Paul's conversion. Paul, who who was one of those who approved of the death of whoever said that Jesus had risen from the dead. But then he met Jesus risen from the dead on the road to Damascus, And he turned from a persecutor of the church to a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and an apostle that God used to write 13 of our books in the New Testament. Number nine, if you want to count, uh, nine out of 11. I told some pastors this week that I was going to include a list like this in one of my six points in my sermon. They literally laughed at me. Isn't that funny? Number nine, though, that the New Testament witnesses are credible and self-deprecating. You see, credibility, because they have things like specific place names that wouldn't have been widely known, all kinds of reasons that these accounts are historically credible. And if they were going to make this up, they wouldn't have made themselves look as foolish as they did in this. Number 10 is the immediate and permanent change in the day of worship from Saturday to Sunday for a large number of Jews. That wouldn't have just happened after worshiping and setting aside the, the seventh day of the week as the day of worship for thousands of years, they're not just going to switch that to Sunday for no reason. But this is the power of the resurrection to move the Lord's designated day of rest every week and worship from Saturday to Sunday. And they saw that immediately, and it's persisted. And, and number 11 evidence of the resurrection is the emergence and growth of Christianity. Christianity the emergence and growth of the church there was a pharisee in jerusalem named gamaliel who had helped to train up paul as a young man and what he's quoted as saying in acts 5:38 after he mentions that there had been other false christs who came before and were crucified and that all of their followers scattered after or not were crucified they were killed and all of their followers scattered after they died What he says about this Christian movement, he says, if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Well, it hasn't failed. God has continued to build his church. The gates of hell have not prevailed against it. But I want to tell you this. I just listed out 11 historical evidences for the resurrection. The reason I did that is because there may be somebody in here who's wavering and saying, well, I just don't know about this, the, the, these kinds of things. Well, just, people don't just get up from the dead. Was it, was it just that back then people thought that crazy stuff like this happened all the time? Of course not. <laughs> of course not. But maybe you're thinking this. And, and I, I hope that that's something that might address some of the things you're thinking. But at the same time, I also know this. If you are running from Christ, if you are looking for excuses why you don't need to repent of your sin, turn your life over to Christ, trust in him alone for salvation, if you're looking for that, there is no number of evidences and historical proofs that I or anyone else with any number of degrees can tell you that's going to convince you that you need to repent and believe. Those things will never do that. I think they're helpful, but they are never going to bring you to Jesus. You're going to come up with one more reason. If you really want to, you're going to come up with one more reason why you don't have to face the truth. You're going to come up with one more reason why it's okay for you to remain hidden in the darkness rather than come into the light of Christ, have your sins exposed repent of them, be humiliated that your whole way of thinking in life was wrong, and turn and trust in him. You're going to come up with all kinds of ways to stay in the comfort of that darkness rather than come into the shining light of Jesus. So I want to tell you this. Stop looking for proofs. They're there. They're abundant. But you know in your own heart that what's really going on is you're running from Christ turn to Christ turn to Christ let me just show you what i'm talking about this is in in the account in the book of Luke after Jesus is risen from the dead it says in Luke 24 verse 40 that Jesus came to his disciples and he showed them his hands and his feet this is Jesus risen from the dead showing them that it's really him that he's in the body that he died in, that, that there's marks in his hands and his feet where he was nailed to the cross. He's, he's showing them what better evidence for the resurrection could you possibly have than that. You know what the next words in Luke are? It says, while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling. You hear that? You're not going to believe even if you saw him in person if your heart is hard about your need to turn to him in faith. But here's what Jesus can do in some of these verses that come right after that. He said, "This, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was with you that everything about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Here's what I hope you'll do if you're doubting Go to the Scriptures. Go to the Scriptures, just like we're in. Read. Pray. Ask God to open your mind to understand the Scriptures. Because ultimately, it's never going to be a piece of evidence that's going to turn your heart to repentance and faith. It's going to be the Holy Spirit, by His message of the good news of Jesus, that would turn your heart to repent to believe, and to be saved. To be saved. that And that leads us to the next thing that's here, which is the joy of all of this, the joy of the resurrection. Look in verse 7 of Matthew 28. It says, Then go quickly. This is the angel instructing the ladies. He says, Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. That's what it looks like when it first hits your heart, and that's what continues, maybe with ups and downs, but it's what continues. When you come to know Christ, there is fear and great joy. Wow. The judge of my sins for all eternity has become my Savior and my friend, my Lord. There's fear, but there's great joy. Where does that joy come from? Well, think about these things that the Bible says are a result of the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. It says in Romans 4.25 that Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It's because Jesus not only died but rose from the dead that we can be counted as right with God, have our sins forgiven, and have eternal life. It says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's joy. You can be saved from your sins. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord it says you will be saved there's there's more joy to this too Romans 8:11 if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you it's our own eternal life and resurrection as it says in 1 Corinthians 15 as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order: Christ the firstfruits; then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Mm. We we can have new life not just in all eternity, but right now in the present, because Jesus is risen from the dead. It says this in Romans six four: We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Are you are you longing to walk in newness of life? Believe in the Lord Jesus. Know that his resurrection power is what gives that. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. It gives us the joy of having purpose in life. If you don't know what the purpose of life is, here's what it says if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are all most to be pitied. But if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, then 1 Corinthians 15, 58, we can be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the solution to the feeling. And maybe even not just the feeling, but the reality that everything you're doing is pointless. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, and it will have a point. It won't be in vain because Jesus is risen from the dead. There's the power to carry out that purpose. Hebrews 13 says, May the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ equip you with everything good that you may do his will. Working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. That because of that power that brought him from the dead, that we can be equipped to do what God would set in front of us. But we don't want to think that the joy and purpose that we have in this life, in, in the joy and purpose that's connected to the resurrection, is just some kind of a help, self-help scheme. I don't, I don't want you to hear it that way. It's not ultimately joy because boy, it can help my life go a lot better. It's not even ultimately just joy because it can get me to heaven. It's joy because of the Christ who was risen from the dead. If you had a better life and you don't know and love Jesus Christ personally, it will be pointless. If you were to go to heaven and you don't know and love Christ personally, you would hate it. The whole thing is about Jesus. You'd be so miserable there if you don't love Jesus. So here's the real central point and reason and joy of the resurrection is what happens next in verses 9 and 10. It says, And behold, Jesus met them. It's not just that they heard about it, it's not just that there was this earthquake and this power and this angel. It's not just that there was evidence of the empty tomb. It's not just that they got told, go and tell other people about this. It's not even just that they were joyful. It's Jesus came and met them. You need to meet Jesus. You need to come to Jesus and know him personally and love him. You need him to know you you need him to come and greet you. If he hasn't, pray that he will. And I don't mean walk up visibly like this. That happened in this time, and we're, we're glad that that did. But Jesus also said, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. You can know Jesus personally, and you must know Jesus personally. He says, Jesus came and met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and worshipped him. It does not then say, Jesus said, don't worship me, worship God only. No, it was right for them to worship him because he is God. God who took on human nature to live for us, to die for us, to rise for us, to give us eternal life. But They were right to worship him because he is Lord And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. They worshipped him. We are to worship him. They met him. We need to meet him. He told them not to fear. And when we come to know Christ, perfect love drives out fear. So this is a day of great joy because Jesus is risen from the dead. It's an event that actually happened in real history, but you need to embrace him, not just on those grounds of, I get it in my head, but you need to know him from the heart. If there's something that's holding you back, sinner, from laying your sin out in the light of Jesus, from turning your life over to him, if there's something that's holding you back Pray that Jesus would come and meet you. Pray that he would open your mind to understand the Scriptures and come to him, believe, and have eternal life because he died for our sins, just like the Scripture said he would. And he rose from the dead, just like it said he would. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus has come. We thank you that he has taken on human nature, yet without sin. I thank you that he lived perfectly for us, that his perfect life can be counted in our account with you by faith. We thank you that he died perfectly for our sins, that his perfect death perfectly took your wrath and put it away forever for us who believe. And I thank you that he's risen from the dead and he is our great prophet and priest and Lord who is ascended and making intercession for us. God, our, our Christ is our all in all, from first to last. He's the alpha and the omega, the starter of it all and the point of it all. So I pray for us believers that if there's any aspect of our heart that's failing to submit to the risen Christ, to rejoice over the risen Christ, to walk after the risen Christ, I pray that you would fix our hearts. Forgive us. Help us to walk after Christ. But I just especially pray today, if there are any who are still holding out, who are still, for some reason, wanting to say that Jesus has not really risen from the dead, or even to say that he is, but it doesn't really apply to me, I pray that you'd take hold of their hearts. I pray that you would grant them the gift of repentance and faith in Jesus, and let today be the day of salvation. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen.